turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. We are considering the first four verses uh, this morning as I was uh, preparing uh, this sermon. It got me thinking about my uh, primary school teaching days. I uh, finished as a primary school teacher uh, back at the October half term. Uh, and throughout my time as a primary school teacher, it was a constant battle to get my pupils to read. And I'm a great lover of books. I can easily lose myself in a book, no problem at all. And so it was always a, a sort of consternation to me that uh, my pupils didn't like to read. So I'd uh, encourage them to read non-fiction books and read interesting things about tarantulas and blue whales and uh, and creatures that uh, are absolutely crazy. I, I like to, to get them to read. Uh, and so they'd sit down in my class, they'd open these non-fiction books, uh, and then there would be this massive long introduction, and you could see their eyes glazing over, and their, their, their heads would fall down, the book would go upside down, and they'd stop reading. Uh, when, we, when it comes to books, uh, we can often think that introductions are a waste of time. It's just that padding at the start of a book where the author thanks every Tom, Dick and Harry for uh, helping them and inspiring them to write the book in the first place. So what we do is we flick over the introduction and we want to get to the interesting bit. That's what we often do. Now this morning we're at the beginning uh, of a year, aren't we? And we're at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And straight away we get into an introduction. It's the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. Does that mean that we do what my pupils do? That do our eyes glaze over? And do we think, oh, I just want to get onto the interesting bits about John the Baptist and the Christmas narratives? Well, not at all. These first four verses of the Gospel of Luke are hugely important. Uh, you see here uh, that Luke is trying to explain to his reader, Theophilus, why he is writing in the first place. And those first four verses in the original Greek are just one long sentence uh, that is Luke telling Theophilus the whole point of his gospel. It's like he's a good primary school teacher. He's setting out at the beginning of the lesson to explain to his pupil uh, the learning objective. So what is this thing that uh, Luke wants Theophilus to know by the end of the session. Well, it's a whole lot more important than perhaps learning to calculate the area of a circle. You see it in verse 4. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, that is a bold objective, isn't it? It really is. Uh, the certainty of the things uh, that you have been taught. And that word certainty is what we want to begin with this morning and end our time together with as well. The question is this, how can Luke be so bold as to be able to state to Theophilus, I'm writing this orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. If we went out of these doors this morning, out onto the streets of Kladach and started telling people on the street we told our friends and our neighbours and our work colleagues, hey, you know this Christianity thing? You can be certain that it is true. The less polite of those people would perhaps laugh in your face because they have swallowed this idea that certainty can only be part of the realm of science and scientific thought 
and research. Faith for our society only can deal in the realm of conjecture, wishful thinking, vague hope, and people of faith have no right to be talking about certainty. And you'll even hear people in certain spheres of Christianity speaking in this way. As long as you have faith, they might say, reasonableness and reliability in Christianity are unattainable, they might say. But it's okay, we've got our faith. It's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, in the realm of, uh, say, medicine or Formula One racing, you have to have, it is absolutely imperative to know exactly what you are doing. You have to have years of experience and natural talent behind you because otherwise people's safety and lives would be at stake. But in the realm of spiritual beliefs where we're dealing with our own eternal safety, it's okay to be unsure. It's okay to be vague and woolly and uncertain. That is not the case for Luke. He's saying, listen, most excellent Theophilus, you can be absolutely sure of the things you have been taught. You can be certain about them. And I want to describe two things or two reasons why Luke can be uh, certain uh, of these things. The first is that he has certainty in eyewitnesses. He has certainty in the eyewitnesses. We're talking here about where Luke got his information from. And you see it in verse 2. Just as they, now they is verse 1, the things that have been fulfilled among us, were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke along with the many others in verse 1, who had, as it says here, had undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Where did they get their information from about the life of Jesus Christ? Well, they got it from eyewitnesses, people who were actually there, who actually saw these things take place with their own eyes. And for Luke... He does it carefully. He does it meticulously. Verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He's not just accepted the eyewitness testimony at face value. He's checked his sources diligently. He's going right back to John the Baptist and the foretelling of his birth. This really is investigative writing at its very best. Now, in our own congregation in Bethel in Kevin Hengoid, we have many avid historians. And in fact, well, I'm one of them. Uh, I love history. Uh, And we went last summer to the Imperial War Museum. Uh, We spent a good few hours there without children. It was lovely. Uh, Mainly to sit in a cafe and drink coffee and talk. Uh, But we like our history. Uh, And we know the difference between primary and secondary sources. Secondary sources for the historian, they convey 
the experiences of others. In other words, it's second-hand information. So it might be something like a film, like uh, the film 1917, which is about the First World War. It might be a reference book. But primary sources are things that include first-hand information. For example, the experience of those who are actually there at the time of a certain event. Or it could be artifacts from that time. So if it's the Second World War, it might be a helmet or a gun from that period. So you can see straight away that primary sources are much more reliable than secondary sources because they haven't been modified or changed by someone's interpretation. So if you want to be a good historian, you use primary sources. Luke, who is possibly one of the best historians ever to have lived, does exactly that. What we have before us here is an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony. And that is not something that is unique to Luke. The writers of the New Testament are unashamedly uh, um, sort of bold when they proclaim that what they're saying to us about Jesus of Nazareth is actually true because they saw it with their very own eyes. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they've been dragged before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they tell them this in no uncertain terms. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And the Sanhedrin, listening to this, they took note, it says in verse 13, that these men had been, had been with Jesus. Uh, they warn Peter and John not to speak or teach anymore in the name of this Jesus. Uh, and then uh, Peter says this to them in verse 19 and 20. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter has already told that crowd on the day of Pentecost, hasn't he? In Acts chapter 2, 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of this fact. You get a 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. You listen to the verbs, the doing words here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. Can you see the emphasis? Can you see the repetition? They are not ashamed to talk about the fact that they saw and heard and felt these things themselves. You look at the boldness of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I read it earlier. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty what can any reasonable person say about what these apostles 
uh, was saying. You can only really come to three possible conclusions about all of this. Number one, uh, they had either all collectively lost their minds, for which there is absolutely no evidence of that, or they were all collectively evil people who wanted to deceive uh, people. Well, if you follow uh, the history of these men, you can see that as they were followers of Jesus Christ, there was no evidence of that at all. Or thirdly, it is all true. What they were saying, what they had seen, what they had felt, what they had heard was all true. You've got to remember that most of these apostles were executed. They were put to death simply for proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. You've got to ask the question, would you willingly die for something that you knew to be a lie? And as you get to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, when was this written? Well, about AD 63. In other words, in a time frame where there would be people still alive who could question uh, the narrative that Luke is giving here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first few verses there, Paul himself is repeating the words, he appeared, he appeared. He's saying that he appeared to lots of different people after his resurrection. Verse 6, after that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I hope I've made my point clear enough. Can you see it? Luke and the apostles were not happy for Christianity to be in that realm of conjecture and of wishful thinking, of make-believe, the vague, the woolly. Not at all. The gospel writers were at pains to say these things are historically verified. Jesus Christ really was born. He really did live. He really did die on a Roman cross. He really was buried. He really did rise again from the dead. And he really did ascend to heaven. So, the question is this. What do you think about all of that? What do you really think about all of that? Have you made your decision? If you're not a Christian yet here this morning... Is there something here that is causing some stirring in your soul? If you're already a Christian here this morning and you wholeheartedly believe these words of Luke, well, as you go about your daily life, as you go about, as Nathaniel was praying for this morning, as you go to your workplaces and rub shoulders with people who don't believe these things, don't be ashamed to own Jesus as your Lord. It is true. It's really true. So there's certainty here in eyewitnesses. But I think more than that, really, Luke has certainty in a person. He has certainty in a person. I'm talking here about the content of what Luke is writing about, or really what that content is pointing to, what that content is about. It's about a person. Now, that's not immediately obvious uh, when you read these first four verses, but there's a good clue in verse 2. Yes, these things were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses, but 
these people were also servants of the word or ministers of the word servants of the word is an unusual expression it really is you won't find it anywhere else in the new testament but when you see those words the word as christians our minds should be immediately drawn to another place to john chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word capital w and the word was with god and the word was god we are talking about a person we're talking about jesus of course jesus christ the son of god the god man and in acts in luke's other book he regards preaching the word as meaning exactly the same thing as preaching jesus christ you get it in acts chapter 8 verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went compared with acts 9 verse 20 at once saul began to preach the greek here is literally preached jesus in the synagogue that jesus is the son of god you compare that with acts chapter 10 verse 36 peter speaking here you know the message god sent to the people of israel telling the good news of peace through jesus christ who is lord of all hopefully you get the point uh, luke wasn't getting his information from academic historians but from those who were servants of the word capital w in other words they preached a person not a philosophy as alistair Begg uh, regards it which is why luke can say to them here or to theophilus here that he's putting together an orderly account because it is all running in one direction like streams flowing into a mighty river there is a grand purpose to the gospel of luke and that is to present to theophilus and anybody else the person of the lord jesus christ and this person is like no other that has walked the face of the earth this person comes onto the pages of the gospel of luke quite spectacularly and we should know this because we've just been through the christmas period you flick over a page or two into chapter 1 verse 31 to 33 the angel announces to mary you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name jesus he will be great he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever his kingdom will never end will never end and then you get those angels announcing to the shepherds don't you in chapter 2 verse 11 today in the town of david a savior has been born to you he is christ the lord you can already see can't you the focus of luke's writing uh, jesus comes onto the scene as the one to whom all the old testament prophecies were pointing here was israel's messiah whose kingdom would never ever end at last at last 
Here was the long-awaited promised one who, as his name so clearly shows, Jesus, he would save his people from their sins. And as the angels say to the shepherds there in chapter 2, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is stupendously good news. This person in the pages of Luke would be born miraculously of a virgin birth, meaning that he was at one and the very same time very God and very man. As very God and very man, this person would, as a 12-year-old boy, sit in the temple courts and amaze people with his knowledge and understanding. You see that in verse 47 of chapter 2. As very God and very man, he caused people to marvel because he taught as one who had authority. Chapter 4, verse 32. You flick through the pages of the Gospel of Luke and this person is performing miracle after miracle. He's healing many people of all kinds of physical problems, including blindness, leprosy. He's raising people from the dead. He's feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He's setting people free from demon possession. Wow! Wow! And then you get this other theme across the pages of Luke. This person is not only the the very God, this amazing person who does amazing miracles, but he also has concern. He has concern, special concern, for the disenfranchised, the uh, forgotten people of the society back then. Women, children, those without money, and possessions. Luke's gospel is full of stories of individuals of whom society back then would have taken no notice at all. You've got Mary, you've got Martha, you've got Zacchaeus, you've got the woman who anointed Jesus's feet. And then Jesus's parables themselves, they're focusing, aren't they, on individuals. Here is a savior who loves the downcast. He loves the forgotten ones. He loves the uninfluential. And this Savior also knew exactly why he had come. He knew it. In fact, through the Gospel of Luke, you've got Jesus controlling the the things that are happening to him in his life uh, to fulfill his ministry and then to render himself at the end of his life as an offering for sin. In Luke chapter 4, you've got this wonderful history there of him going into a synagogue in Nazareth. He stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, here it is, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down. You can imagine the power of this event. He sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He knew 
that he was the Messiah that had been promised from centuries before. And then after he hints strongly to the people before him that Gentiles would also be included in the people of God. The people don't like it at all and they try and take him to the edge of a cliff and throw him off. It says, and this is an amazing, amazing verse, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. His time had not yet come and he was in control of it. He wasn't going to let the crowd get its way. He was in control of the events of his life. His time would come, of course, later on, wouldn't it? Later on. And just like all the other gospel writers, Luke devotes most of his gospel or a significant portion of his gospel to the last week of Jesus's life. You've got to ask the question, why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because this is the most important bit. This is where all of it is heading. Wonderfully, as one preacher put it, the lawgiver who had become the law keeper was now dying in the place of the law breaker. Here it is, the one thing that makes sense of it all. Why is the world in which we live so desperately sad and dark and senseless? Well, it's because people are lost in their sin, aren't they? They are separated from God and they are under God's judgment. But wonderfully, as the hymn so succinctly put it, there is now a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a door that is now open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Jesus came and lived the life that we were supposed to live, but could not. He then took the punishment that we deserved when he died on that cross as a sacrifice for sin, and through that he could give to all that would believe that he did that for them, forgiveness for all of their sins forgiveness that we do not deserve and that my friends is staggeringly good news it really is people do not have to stay lost people do not have to stay in the dark you don't have to remain under God's wrath there is now a way back to God there's a way back to God because of this unique, majestic person. Jesus Christ, very God and very man who loved us and gave himself for us. And the final chapter of Luke, it rises to a great crescendo in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to heaven. Jesus did not remain dead. He rose again from the dead, breaking the power of death once and for all, never to die again. And what do we make of all this? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes it clear that for all who believe in him, says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Can you see that Luke is not primarily a historian, although he is a very good one? He is not primarily a biographer, although he does give us 24 chapters of the life of Jesus. But he is primarily an evangelist. He's an evangelist. He wants Theophilus and anybody who would read this gospel uh, to discover that this is actually good news for us all. Clearly, the scripture before us this morning is shouting out to us, it really is, uh, that this person, the word incarnate, of whom the apostles were servants, simply cannot be ignored. Cannot be ignored. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 20, Jesus asks his, his disciples perhaps one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. He asks them this, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is asking that same question of all of us here 2,000 years later. Who do you say that Jesus is? Ask yourself that question and ask yourself what is your answer to that question, which brings us right back to where we began with the word certainty. Luke wasn't writing a dry, boring introduction to his gospel that Theophilus could skip over and get to the interesting bits. No, he wrote this introduction to make his gospel personal personal to Theophilus and personal to us. Have a look at verse 4. So that you may know, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Some of us are very good procrastinators. I'm talking about myself before you get offended, by the way. Uh, I'm thinking of myself. I'm a great procrastinator. I put off things that I don't want to do. So as a kid, if I saw sprouts on my plate, they would be the very last things that I would eat. And my mother got wise to this and would hide the sprouts under the mashed potato so that when I got to the end of the mashed potato, I had a nasty surprise. Homework was exactly the same thing. I'm not sure if you're like this. But I would put off homework to the very last second and then have to pull off some all-nighters to get it finished. Some things in life we can put off, and it doesn't really matter. But what Luke is telling us about really does matter. They really do matter. Don't put off questions of your eternal destiny. Don't put off questions about sin and the coming judgment. Don't put off, please, coming face to face with Jesus. Leave your uncertainty behind and come to him. Admit that you're a sinner. Ask him to save you because he absolutely will. That is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save 
those that are lost. You can personally know the certainty of these things. Christian, look at these first four verses of Luke. Look at the rest of his gospel. Read through it when you have a chance. We can be certain. We can be assured. We can be confident that as we live uh, to proclaim the word in whatever we can, we do not follow cleverly invented stories, but we follow a real person, the God-man who was really born, who was really crucified for sinners, who really did rise from the dead, and really did go back into heaven, which means that he really is coming back one day to take us to be with him where he is. Let us not lose heart. Let's live for him and follow him all our days.